Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am always happy when friends assemble around a table and we do what we call guide talk or guys who talk. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish and Dr. Greg Borgond. How about that for a change of pace? Gentlemen, welcome. <laughs> I'm impressed. To get I a doctor am in frankly the house. impressed <laughs> too. Yeah, I like it. Got the big gun here. So, yeah, right. Greg, nice to have you here. <laughs> it's good to be here. Are you nervous? Sure. Are you good? I like that. I like that. All right, let's uh, just remind all of you that your questions are important to us, and we'd love to hear from you. So what question do you have? You've been maybe in a Bible study recently, and you guys were talking about something, and it came to no understanding, or you want more uh, clarification on a topic, a verse in Scripture, a passage. Let us know what it is. We'll do our best to try to answer it. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. 2484. All right, here's a question. Are there rewards in heaven? Do we know the levels of punishments in hell? Are there levels of punishments in hell? And are there rewards in heaven? There is there is talk about rewards in heaven. Not a lot, but it's there. I am not aware of levels of punishment in hell. Okay. Although I think most people would like to assign somebody they don't like to a much lower level. Mm-hmm. But I'm not aware of that biblically. Mm. So when you when you get to heaven, you then are made aware of the rewards that you'll be getting. Actually, you, you're going to know that um, at the judgment seat of Christ. Mm-hmm. The judgment seat of Christ is only for Christ followers. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with uh, acquiring eternal salvation. That's already been guaranteed the moment that you receive Christ as Savior and Lord. And so when God calls you home, uh, when you appear before that judgment seat of Christ, you're to give an account for what you've done with what God's given you. And as you heard me say on your show before, Bill, he's expecting an ROI. He's expecting... <laughs> A return on his investment. He doesn't want us to be like the unfaithful servant that buries his talent in the ground and brings it back and says, here, here's what you gave me, and there's no increase. So God expects us to leverage what he called us to be and do to facilitate his redemptive purposes in a fallen world. And God will honor us for that. It also says, and I don't see any deviation from it as I look at Scripture, that once we receive those crowns, those rewards, we, we lay them at his feet and give them back to him. But it's acknowledged. He acknowledges us uh, for what we've done and what we have accomplished in the faith. Uh, has, again, nothing to do with our eternal uh, salvation. Uh, it has everything to do with maybe where we start and where we go from that point on. But uh, nothing about eternal salvation. That's been guaranteed. Now, one of the real dangers in Christianity is that we are so, as Protestants, uh, lean heavily on we're saved by grace through faith, which I agree with 100%. But it's kind of like we stop there. And we're so afraid to talk about maturity. We're afraid to talk about doing things that live on after us, things that built the kingdom of God, because that's where those rewards will come from, or that's where those crowns will come from, from what we do. Now, you can get saved and you can sit in church the rest of your life, you know, and sing the songs and do nothing and still be in the kingdom of God. 
But in terms of what you were called to do, as as the doctor mentioned, it the Lord's already set apart the things we're supposed to be doing, the ministries we're to build, the people we're supposed to touch. And oftentimes we don't know that and we pass that up. A listener joined in with Jesus told Pilate that Judas's was the greater sin. Does this suggest greater punishment? Well, there's always going to be consequences to your sin. I mean, all sin, God sees all sin as a transgression of his commands, of his character. And so consequently, um, there are, we experience them today. There are different consequences for different sin. But the sin itself is what God is looking at. As it says in Scripture, God looks at the hearts of men, and he looks at our motives. And the, the behavior that it produces has consequences in the here and now, but when we appear before him and we're judged for those sins, then we're going to be, it's, it's, it's just a matter of transgressing his law, regardless of the depth or the gravity or the significance of the sin that we do perform. But when we're here on this earth, there are consequences for some of the decisions we make. Mm-hmm. So why would that not be the same thing uh, when, when we're in glory? <laughs> it makes sense. And I think that, again, uh, I've been a pastor for nearly 50 years and I go to a lot of pastors' conferences, and I read a lot of stuff. We don't talk about this very much in Christianity. We, we talk strongly about salvation, which I understand, and we talk about what's going to come at the end of time, which I understand. But it's that in-between time. What are we doing now? Because each of us has been uniquely made. We're created in the image of God, and we have a purpose. And I'm realizing most Christians don't understand what that purpose is, and I want to say right off the, the top— just simply going to church, singing the songs, and giving a tithe is not your purpose. Yeah. It goes way beyond that. But that's what we seem to only settle for among church leaders instead of we are there to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not to build our own individual ministries and not to have our own television shows, which is fine if you have that, but we are there to equip the believers. And too often, that's not really what transpires in the local church. Yeah, and, and, and the Scripture is really clear about this that none of us are a mistake, a happenstance, or a coincidence. And it says that God superintended our formation in our mother's womb. He knew us before we ever were. He set the number of days we'd walk this earth. So we were on the heart of God before we ever came to be. And then in Ephesians 2.10, what you're referring to, yep. Pastor, is that God has given us a unique purpose for our life. We're not talking about a generic purpose. It's unique to you as an individual, and it's based on your calling, and calling is everything to do with how God's wired you, your right. spiritual gifts, your natural abilities, your acquired skill, your personality temperament, your leadership style, your core values, your principles that make you so unique, so distinct and different. And Bill's heard me talk about this before. It's like we all have this part to play in God's great mosaic of activity. And, and if you look at any mosaic, they're, they're made up of, of, of pieces of glass, different colored glass. And when we're not fulfilling what God has called us to do, when we're not leveraging who we are to facilitate his redemptive purposes in a fallen world, it's like taking that piece of glass and removing from that from that beautiful mosaic that God has put together. Exactly. And so we all have a function, a role to play, and it's coming into alignment with that that's going to be important for us to go ahead and move from shotgun to laser beam in our life. And as we've talked about in the past, for some unfathomable reason, infinite God has chosen us as his finite creatures to facilitate his redemptive purposes in a fallen world. Go right. figure. If we were in the, if I were in the decision sheet, I, I, I certainly wouldn't have chose me. But God uses us as his arms and legs to facilitate his redemptive purposes. So we have a calling. 
We have a direction. We have a unique purpose to fulfill, and God has equipped us uh, to do that. It's a matter of coming into alignment, tuning our heart to the heart of God, seeing the world as God sees the world, engaging the world as God engages the world. You know, I want to touch on what you just said because it's so important. Many churches offer spiritual gift inventories. Discover your spiritual gifts, and I do that, and it's very good. What most churches don't do, though, is help people discover their temperament that goes along with it and their passion. Because mm-hmm. everybody's got a passion, something that drives them inside, but they don't know how to identify it or what to do with it. Well, what I try to do when I teach is take, here's your spiritual gift, here's your temperament, here's your passion, and then try to talk the in, through with the individual what that could possibly mean in terms of ministry, future, yeah. how you live out your life. Because most of us don't know, yeah. and we struggle with that. And I know many people that have gone through the, the inventories of the spiritual gifts, they still don't know how to put it to work. No. You know, what's interesting about that, there's, there's no guarantee just because you've taken a spiritual gift inventory that there are these gifts, these are your gifts. The only way that you're going to know that you indeed have that spiritual gift is when you seek out opportunities to express that gift. And the difference between a spiritual gift and a talent is unique as this. A spiritual gift will always produce a spiritual result. Right. So the only way you're going to find out if you have that spiritual gift is to take a proactive stance, um, uh, seek out opportunities that give you an opportunity to express that gift and see what God does with it. And that's how you're, you're going to know that you have that, that spiritual gift. I take uh, people through a process called the MAP which helps them identify biblical purpose, life purpose, and committed passion. Sure. Committed passion, you talked about passion. Committed passion, just for the sake of, of clarification, God calls us either to, um, uh, to serve a people group or to embrace uh, a, a cause or a combination of the both. Once you begin to have clarity about the people group God's called you to serve or the cause he's called you to embrace or a combination of the both, all of a sudden it gives you purpose to your life. It does. Just as what you were saying. It yep. informs it, it conditions it, it establishes it, it clarifies it. And so uh, helping people do that, and you're absolutely right. I don't see many churches going that second step to help people come to clarity about those issues. And then they released out into society after worship, after prayer, um, and not having, in many cases, a clue as to how they're engaged in the world. I find it interesting that um, we're called into the world to minister to the world for the sake of the world, we're, but we're not to be of the world. Right. And many as of, of us live in these Christian ghettos. We think if we tie a verse on a rock, we throw it over a transom, we hope it's going to hit a, a non-Christian. They're going to read the, <laughs> read the verse and they're going to come to Christ, but we never leave the ghetto, the Christian ghetto. Exactly. And God's called us out to do that. And so when you, the, the, the way you have confidence to do that is when you have that clarity about how God's wired you, what your purpose is, what he's called you to be and do. And that's what the local church should be doing all the time with yeah, people. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Nice start, gentlemen. We're already at our first break. So let me uh, remind you that we would love your questions. So text them over to 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Dr. Greg Borgon and Tom Parrish are my power panel today. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. 
Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. You know, I like this time. We call it Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk. And my power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish and Dr. Greg Borgon. So let me know what questions are. There's some great ones coming in. We're going to try to get to all of them. So here's one that I think is a result of our previous discussion. And I'm looking your direction, Greg. If salvation is promised at the very beginning, then how can God expect or anticipate a return on his investment? The Bible says that it is not by what we did or did not do in life. Yeah, the fact is that when we when we receive Christ, and I, I make a real strong distinction, you don't find anywhere in the Bible where it says to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, because who's accepting whom? What it says to receive him, it's mm-hmm. a gift. That very moment, you are given eternal salvation. That will not change regardless of what happens from that point on. You're saved. I mean, if that that confession was legitimate, if the uh, embracing of our Savior as, as Lord is is um, uh, a function or a, a, the purpose of, of a person receiving Jesus, God will save you. But it also says in Scripture that we're to work out our salvation. It has nothing to do with le- or with uh, losing it. It has everything to do with coming into alignment with what God has called us to be and do. And so that's what I'm talking about, that God expects us to do something with what we've been given. And again, it has nothing to do with eternal salvation. It has everything to do with what he's called us to be and do and how we're going to facilitate his purposes in a fallen world. So to work out your salvation means to work out how God's wired you, the gifts that he's given you, the talents he's, he's embraced you with or that he's graced you with, and then to use that. I mean, when you take a look at that parable about the talents that we just briefly mentioned, then you can see the differentiation there about how the master uh, scolded, actually, the servant who buried his talent in the ground and returned back to him with no increase. Where another servant, who was fivefold, then tenfold, and God honored them both for that contribution to his kingdom. So we're a part of the family of God at the moment of conversion. There's so many things that happen, so right instantaneous to that that moment, justification, adoption, regeneration, um, all of these things are given to you at the moment you are saved because you now become a member of the family of God. You're given a new passport. You belong to the kingdom of God. It says that you're a citizen of heaven, and so you've been adopted into God's family, and that is not going to change regardless of what happens from that point forward. I'm a very visual person, so I'm... When I preach, I use PowerPoint. I have PowerPoint. I have little videos up on the screen. I do that in all my teaching. One diagram that I was blessed to come up with was on this very topic, and it shows the person on the left who is lost, a lost person. But by grace through faith, the Lord Jesus touches that person, 
And then there's a big filter, like a camera filter. And now that's our lens. Because we're saved by grace through faith, everything we do after that, and I've got about 10 items listed, is out of thankfulness. Mm-hmm. We are thankful. We give out of thankfulness. We serve out of thankfulness. We discover our gifts because we're thankful. And when we run on that energy of thankfulness, mm-hmm. the Lord will guide us into our ministries. The danger is that I think a lot of people want to be saved, and I appreciate that. And I want them saved too. But they kind of go back to their old way of life, and there's not a lot of thankfulness there. When you are thankful, you know, here's the thing. When I teach people about giving, I don't teach tithing anymore. I teach them Tithing was the letter of the law in the Old Testament. You know, that's what was expected. How thankful are you beyond tithing? And it's been amazing to see what happens in terms of giving because people suddenly realize, I'm not under a legalistic system to give. I'm under a thankful system. And when we understand that, it makes a world of difference how we live in this world. Yeah, there's a a powerful passage. It's found in Titus uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through uh, 14. And in that passage... It says, for the grace, uh, let, me, let me get it for you here, a passage, uh, chapter 2, uh, beginning uh, with verse uh, 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the personification, the grace of God being Jesus Christ, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Uh, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we're not good. Once, once we're saved, we're not going to be in a fetal position waiting for Christ to come or living with our bags packed, just waiting for the bus to come and take us uh, to heaven God has called us to uh, use works to manifest God's glory in, in our lives and to show the, the significance and the power of, of God in our life. Now, what's interesting about this passage, and it's what, you, Pastor, you're kind of referring to here, is that oftentimes we're glad to embrace the benefits that come mm-hmm. from receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But we're a little hesitant to understand, well, now we're under new management. That's right. That we have an obligation, we have duties to become as, as a member of God's family. So this passage not only addresses the benefits that accrue to our account, eternal salvation, being a part of God's family, uh, but it also talks about the importance of saying, no to ungodliness and the worldly passions, to live upright and godly lives in this present age, um, and then that God has works for us to do. What I've said in, in Western culture and a lot of places where I speak as And nobody really cares what you have to say until they observe how you live. And if you live a life of integrity and authenticity under the authority of God, people will ultimately want to hear what you have to say, even if they disagree with you. Why? Because they cannot get past a life well lived. They can deconstruct your faith system. They can argue with your beliefs and say, your truth ends where my nose begins, what they cannot argue with is a life well-lived in the same direction that has coherence, consistency, and congruence. And that's what God brings to the life of a believer. So if you're going to make an impact on this world, then it's not just about what you say, it's how you live that gives validity to what you say. And so that simply means it's not a matter of just receiving the gift. Sooner or later, you got to unwrap that gift. And in that gift... Is a calling, 
and God has given you a direction and a focus for your life. And as a lifelong evangelical Lutheran, I'm going to say to you, preach it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there's another question as we're on gifts. What about gifts in heaven? Aren't these received by good works? So if salvation isn't received through good works, then how should we understand gifts in heaven? What about... Um, so there's the question. Well, if the good works are what I'm producing in order to get the Lord's favor, I've missed the point. Exactly. When I'm thankful for what the Lord has done for me, and then I do the good works, I do it to honor him. And my goal is to be just like Jesus in this world. So I think like him, talk like him, behave like him, so that people can literally see Jesus through me. The goal, then, is to use the gifts I've been given to build the kingdom of God and to touch people's lives. Um, I work with a lot of people. I do a lot of counseling. I gave up the idea these were good works a long time ago. This is my obligation because I am thankful to Jesus for what he's done. Therefore, it's not a distraction. It's not a problem. It's who I am. It is a lifestyle, and I want every Christian to understand that. You know, it's not a 9-to-5 job. It's a lifestyle that's 24-7, and when the Lord presents the opportunity or opens a door, I want to step through it. Amen. All right, here's a question. I I know that the devil will be detained during the millennium. I want to know if the earth will be made perfect like Eden during the millennium. Go for uh, it. Yeah. Um, during the millennium, you've got to remember that that's the 1,000-year reign mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ. Um, at that point, as far as I understand, there is not um, a new heavens and a new earth at that point. Until the end of the millennium, Satan is released again. He creates havoc in the world for a short period of time, and then finally he's consigned to the fires of hell. And we have a new earth and a new heaven where we all take up abode in those locations, and that's what my understanding is when it happens. Is that correct, Pastor? I agree with you. I don't know how you would explain it differently than that. Here's the reality, though. The reality is, and I get a lot of these questions from uh, a lot of people over the years, you need to be sure right now, just be right with Jesus. And he already has planted the garden. He knows what's coming in the future. He knows what to do. There's nothing to be concerned about or fear. It's going to be better than anything you imagine. I had a friend that had a near-death experience, and he had two small children and a wife. And uh, he said, Tom, if you think this is reality, you should have been where I was. He said, I could taste the color of the leaves on the tree. He said, the love was like overwhelming to me. And he said, I wasn't concerned about the surroundings. It was the impression it made. And then the Lord sent me back. And he said, I woke up in the recovery room, and there was my wife and my two small kids. And he said, I got to honestly tell you as a brother in Christ, I was angry for three weeks that I was back. <laughs> because the love I experienced and the joy overpowered everything else in my life. And uh, that was like 30 years ago, and he still talks to me about it when we get on the phone and talk. Hmm. All right. Um, let me know. We're going to go to break. And if you have questions, 877-933-2484. And we uh, have got a lot of great questions coming in. And right now we're just up against the hard break, so I can't start another question. Um, but there's some great questions coming in, and they will take some uh, attack. We'll have to get on these, all right? You guys ready? We'll try. Uh, all right, good. <laughs> Dr. Greg Borgon and Pastor Tom Parrish are my guests. Again, the number 877-933-2484. I don't know if you have downloaded the Faith Radio app. We have tried to make it easier for you. You can now text the word APP, A-P-P to 
And we'll send you a secure link to listen to your favorite faith radio shows. I hope one of them is mine. Thanks for joining me today. If you just climbed in your car, it's time for Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Pastor Tom Parrish and Dr. Greg Borgon are my power panel today. All right, gentlemen, uh, this connects to a question we just talked about. After Jesus reigns for a thousand years, why does God let Satan loose for a while? What's the point? I wish there was a really good theological answer for that. I mean, it's there in Scripture. It talks about it. Um I'm not totally sure, but I know this, that Jesus will have the final word in all things, and in the end, he will reign supreme. So what happens in between, I'm not clear. Well, I mean, this is just um, my own personal uh, idea about what that, that means. I mean, during the millennium, people are going to be born sure. during that millennium. And so consequently, uh, they're going to come to a place in their own life where they have to make a decision whether or not to receive Christ, and if there is no counter to that, if there's there's no way to to cause the stress necessary to even consider the question, um, then they can't make a decision for Christ. So my sense would be that Satan is is loosed uh, simply to go ahead and give people an opportunity to receive the grace. And how are they going to know the distinction between sin and anything else if Satan is not involved? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, that's an opinion. That's a great question. Mm-hmm. But as I think about it, um, people will be uh, born during the millennium. They will have to come to their own decisions about Christ. The advantage is, is he's right there, physically there. And so they'll be tempted, even with his presence, to deny him. So um, that's, that's going to be an interesting time. <laughs> it is, you know, and I've, I've had to think this through a lot. Here's the questions I've always had, and I haven't received any real answers yet. In the millennium, uh, if there are children born, how long do they live? Mm. And if Satan is released at the end of the thousand years, what happens to people in the 200s? <laughs> and so, you know, there's, there's always this dilemma of what's really going on. I'm not sure in that sense, although I've been doing a lot of studying on thousand in the Bible, and of course Peter says... One day is like yeah. a thousand years, and then John talks about it in Revelation 20. I'll be honest, and I'm being as honest as I can. I really don't know. What I know is, is that Jesus reigns supreme through that time, and mm-hmm. no matter what Satan does, he loses. And we have to have confidence in whether we live normal lives, live and die in that sense, and wait for the resurrection, or whether we live all through the thousand years. The Bible doesn't say. What it does say is we better keep our focus in the right place, and that's mm-hmm. Jesus. And it's the same message today. Mm-hmm. All right, here's another question. I attend a Lutheran church, so Tom Parrish, I'm already looking your direction. <laughs> that seems to put a lot of emphasis on baptism, communion, and going to church. These are all good things, but I feel that the emphasis should be on Jesus foremost. How do I know if my church is off track and or when it's time to find another? Good question. The bottom line is, now I'm a Lutheran, so we baptize children and adults, all right? 
But when the baptismal service, when I baptize a child or if they're young or even if they're infants, I put emphasis on the fact that this is a covenant that Jesus makes, and it is the responsibility of the church, of the parents, to help this child come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and surrender their life to him. And oftentimes we don't do that. We get them baptized, and then they're confirmed at age 14, and then they're made members of the church. Yeah, I think it is the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper, very biblical. Protestants agree that it's important to do those things. We just don't haven't thought it through far enough. What is the goal of baptism? What is the goal of the Lord's Supper? But to be in communion with Jesus. And so the goal is, whether you're being baptized as an adult, which I've done a lot of adult baptisms, or you're baptized as an infant, if the church does not help people, those people know their purpose, the love of Jesus, and whether in this world, then we've all missed the point. And going to church isn't just enough. So pastors, in Lutheran church, I would say this. Um, I've been a Lutheran all my life. Um, and many people ask me, are you really a Lutheran? Yeah, I really am. But the emphasis in Lutheranism should be, just like it is with the Baptists, the Pentecostals, or elsewhere, on the Lord Jesus Christ and on kneeling before him and serving him. And if that doesn't happen, it doesn't matter what we believe, we're lost. Yeah, of course, in Baptistic theology, it's a matter of adults being baptized, which is a public. There's not a right. there's not a, a um, imputing of grace in the act of baptism. It's a public declaration that I am under new management. That I'm going to make a declaration that I'm going to be uh, waving the flag of the kingdom of God. I'm now part of that kingdom. I'm a part of that family, and I intend to live my life in accordance with that family. And so that's what baptism means, uh, and it's usually done as soon as possible after somebody right. received Jesus as, as Savior and Lord. And so um, that's why it's so significant. I agree with Tom. It's, 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 it's not about you as much as it is about who you're declaring your allegiance to, and that is Jesus Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I used to lead lots of missions trips. Used to speak to students at colleges and high schools about my recovery and my faith. Since then, I've gotten married. I have two little boys now, and I often feel apathetic regarding ministry because I simply don't have the time I used to. I've also sometimes fallen back into old habits and have to repent. This causes me to question my salvation at times, making me full of fear. Any advice? Well, from a pastoral point of view, uh, I would love for him to come in and sit down and we pray together and really talk about this. Because what's driving the fear? Is the Lord putting a burden on your heart that you should be doing the mission stuff and you're not doing it? Is that where you're being called to? Is it because are the two children really, you know, the handicap for doing that? Or could the children go along? Um, I've done mission trips all over the world, and I've taken people of all ages with me. So there's a lot of different ways to approach this. the, The salvation issue is not on the basis of what you do. It's on who you put your faith in. So let's get that clear. Put your faith in Jesus. And then start today and go back and say, now, Lord, what would you have me do? Because I can't manage my family. I can't manage my job. I can't manage all these things. And I don't want to be apathetic. So open the door to me to do something else. And then be careful because you'll bring somebody into your life or an opportunity you weren't expecting. I would simply say to that, the listener, why do you care? I mean, the very fact that you're expressing a concern tells me that the Spirit of God lives in your life. No, or you wouldn't be bothered by it. Right. You wouldn't be <laughs> even words. asking this question. Right. right. So consequently, when we go through life, um, we go through life and we make decisions oftentimes, sometimes bringing glory and honor to God and sometimes dishonor and shame. 
And we end up building up ashes over the ember of God's uh, image in our life. Every human being is, is born into the image of God. But sometimes that, that ember, that hot ember, that glow of that ember is buried underneath the ashes of decisions we've made along the way where we've sacrificed what we believe and what we value on the altar of expediency, maybe an emergency, a tyranny of the urgent. If there's one thing the enemy loves to do is get us on the treadmill of activity and busyness and play into our, our necessity to be responsible, and then he sidetracks us. And so when we, when we question like this person is questioning, they look at their life and they say, there's just no room. There's just no room in my life to do these things. But that's because we've made decisions to fill what's been called the margin. A margin in your life is the distance between your load and your limits. And if God is going to have an opportunity to use you, it's got to be in the margin of your life. And the only way you create margin is by eliminating some things that are going on in your life. And the only way you know how to do that is by tuning your heart to the heart of God and understand what he, as, as pastor says, what he expects of you and what he's conditioned you to be and to become. And so consequently, building in that margin, reconfiguring ourselves, and not buying into the lie that, um, hey, I've got so much going on in my life, or if they knew the sins that I've committed, they wouldn't want me in service. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Yep. If you take a look at the 12 apostles, you take a look at all the people that Jesus Christ dealt with on the earth, they had baggage. Mm -hmm. We all got baggage. But the fact of the matter is, is that we've got to create that margin by eliminating those things that are not healthy or are destructive in our lives so that we have room to hear God's still small voice in our life. I like that. You know, I think Dr. Rick and I will be do. We'll do dual counseling together for couples and other people because he fills me out pretty well. I appreciate it. <laughs> Good. All right, gentlemen, what do you think about or visualize while praying? I often struggle with staying focused. Hmm. That's always a difficult one. Um, there was a movement of Christianity that said we should not picture anything. Uh, that's because it's a graven image. Um, I often see the hands of Jesus when I pray. I see the nail-scarred hands of what he's done for me. I'm not saying that's what you have to do, but you have to understand, if I'm a highly visual individual, I'm kin kinetic if you want to talk about temperament, kinesthetic if you talk about learning styles. And as a result, the visual is important and the auditory is important, but I need to combine the three. Mm -hmm. And if I don't combine the three, I'll get lost in prayer. Yeah. So I visually see it as well as say it out loud and then do it with the Lord. Our understanding of prayer sometimes is limited to our, our, our communication with God in a verbal sense, whether it's in our mind or it, it, it's out loud. But Brother Lawrence, um, a, a monk that lived years and years and years ago, talked about pra uh, uh, um, practicing the presence of God mm -hmm. in everything you do. Like even looking out of your window here, Bill, I see the beautiful trees. I see the blue sky. It's being aware of who God is. That's prayer. <laughs> how we live our life and how we serve others, that's an act of prayer. And it's an act of worship. Um, one of the ways in which to help with concentration is to pray out loud. Mm -hmm. That helps to focus your mind. I was just with seven men the other night that just finished up on phase two of Heart of a Warrior, and we were talking about uh, the fact that when I encouraged them to do that, they had the same problem. They raised the same problem as your listener. I, you know, I get distracted, but when, Dr. B, when you had us call or us pray out loud, all of a sudden it came into focus for me. Yeah. I paid attention to what I was saying and I was open to hearing the still, small voice of God. Uh, the other thing about prayer is that, um, 
you've got to be make yourself available to hear that still small voice because God speaks most profoundly in that still small voice. And so you have to go ahead and proactively remove the distractions so you can listen and lean forward to hear that still small voice. All right. Here's another question. I have never understood Matthew 9, 16, and 17. Could you explain what Jesus is saying here? No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is pointing out that he is the new wineskin. He is the new covenant. He is the new person. Not the, not the way the Pharisees have done it or the Sadducees or as Israel's done it in the past. He's bringing something brand new. And then he uses this illustration, which people understood in that culture about old wineskins and new wineskins. And wine was a pretty important commodity back then, so you didn't want to lose any. Jesus is saying, look, when you come to me and you walk with me, it's no longer on how you follow the law or you've sacrificed, it's that you surrender to me. And the new covenant is a concept I think we haven't done a good job with in Christianity. I just finished teaching the book of Hebrews, and my classes were astounded at what the book of Hebrews talked about in terms of the new covenant. It was a whole new concept to them. And I'm saying, but the Bible is Old Testament, New Testament, or Old Covenant, New Covenant, but they hadn't heard it before. It's not a matter of slapping a patch on your existence, your current mode of living, the way that you roll, and hope that God is going to sanctify it. I mean, that's not going to work. Uh, it's, as, a, as the pastor has said, the new wineskin is Jesus Christ. And so you just can't go ahead and throw a patch on top of that and expect that God will honor you because you choose to live your life in the same direction you always have, even though you claim to have received this new wineskin. Yep. Mm. Very good. All right. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, more Guide Talk. Thanks for your great questions. Uh, Keep them coming. 877-933-2484. We'll be back with Dr. Greg Borgon and Pastor Tom Parrish in just a minute. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. It is time for Guy Talk, and we are enjoying this hour with Pastor Tom Parrish and Dr. Greg Borgon. So thank you, gentlemen, for being here. As always, appreciate your faithfulness and your great answers. All right, uh, here's a question. Am I sinning if I'm not tithing 10%? I want to give more, but my spouse won't let me. Is this something I should take a bold stance for? Well, you're asking two different questions. Yeah. The first question is, are you sinning because you're not tithing? No. It, that it, we aren't under that kind of legalistic system. Now, what does the Lord put on your heart to give? And basically, if he's telling you to give 25%, which I know people have done that, but your spouse isn't with you, you're in a dilemma, 
and you have to go to the Lord and ask the Lord, what is appropriate or what can I do? And Lord, please save my husband or my wife or whatever, or get them on the same page. Because the Lord isn't interested in also creating havoc in the home. And so it's a combination of what's on your heart, what the Lord calls you to do, and see where that goes. I worked with a millionaire who was giving, he told me he was we up to 5%. We haven't worked together, Tom. I'm sorry. I'm so. sorry, Bill. But he had given 5%, <laughs> and he was telling me how he felt confident he was someday get to 10%. And I said to him, I said, no, you don't have to give 10%. He said, what do you mean? I said, that's not the issue. The issue is how thankful are you? Mm-hmm. And in two years, he went from giving 5% of his income to the, the church I was serving to literally 50% of his income. Wow. And we were able to add on two large additions and other things and never borrow a penny. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm in total agreement that the, the whole issue of tithe was under the Old Testament uh, dynamic. And we, I know we use it today in church and they say, are you tithing? Are you giving 10%? It's not a matter of percent. It's a matter of your understanding of generosity. It's a matter of you coming to a point where you're giving sacrificially. And there are a lot of, lots of things to consider. It might be a spouse who, remember, you're one. You're married, you're one. So you have to take what they have to say into consideration as you start to, to think through what I should be giving to the kingdom, to kingdom work. But it's never been a matter of percentage. It's always been a matter of generosity, and it's always been a matter of sacrifice. Nice. All right, here's a question. I've always had a hard time praying out loud with others. I just go blank and cannot process my thought and express it. Is there something wrong with that? Or do some people just need to pray silently in a group and aloud when they're alone? Well, if you can talk, you can pray out loud. (laughs) Now, there's a barrier there. I don't know what the barrier is for the person. We do some examination or talk about that if we were sitting down talking to one another. But what I would advise you to do is find one person in the church that does pray very well out loud, someone preferably of your own sex, and ask them if they'd mentor you. If you could start talking on the phone together, if you could get together and pray, and give it some time and see what happens. Because there's no judgment. But sometimes we need somebody else to spurn us along. Uh, I think the the devil is very happy at keeping our mouth shut. Mm-hmm. And we need to be, I tell people, what you've heard from the Lord, shout from the rooftops. So I think the person could. It may take time. I'm not being critical. But find somebody that could help you do that. Yeah, there's, there's another thing to consider. Um, when our attention is on how we're coming across to those around us, rather than the focus of who our prayer is directed to, then we get getting caught up in all kinds of dynamics that bring hesitancy to speak out loud at all. But think of it this way. We have a Heavenly Father who loves us. And if any of you out there, a mother or a father, when a child who hasn't been able to reach that point in their life yet where they can communicate clearly, mumble something to you, gesture something to you. Do you love them? Of course you do. You embrace them. You understand them because you've spent time with them. You know what they're trying to communicate. And that's what the Spirit of God does. Even though you might not have the words and you might not feel clear about them, God knows your heart. And so just the fact as a child comes to a father or a mother to say something that may not be clearly understood, but it is understood by the parent, do you think for a minute the Heavenly Father isn't going to embrace you and love you, even though you didn't put the words together correctly? It's not about the words. It's about the intent. And what did Jesus say, you know, about your Heavenly Father? You call him Abba, yeah. which we know in English can mean Daddy. Yeah. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It is expressing your heart 
the best way you can. And it may be a few words. It may be a lot of words. It's not the number of words. It's the matter of the heart coming out. When my young grandson, very young at, at the time, came to Christ, uh, he, he gave his life to Christ in front of his mother, and his mother sent him to me as the grand inquisitor to make sure it was legitimate, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Brain came to me, and he said to me, Papa, I just felt I needed to do that. I said, why, son? I kept hearing this phrase I had, that I had to be a boy after his heart. That doesn't come from that his age at that time. No, I mean, he, he wouldn't have been thinking that in those kind of abstract terms. So I knew immediately that there was a communication between him and God. And that's what you can rely on. Do you think for a minute the fathers are going to say, you want to try that again? It wasn't clear to me. No, he's going to say, I understand what you're trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. I, I love like you. I've known you all of your life. I just realized if Dr. Greg Boyd would come to my church, because as Lutherans, we still have altar calls. We call people to faith every Sunday, and we have people come. But they need an examination afterward, and you would be good for them. <laughs> All right. I love this question. What qualifies one to be ready for the rapture? Oh, that's... Rapture could come right now. Well, if it could come right now, here's the bottom line. Make sure you've knelt before Jesus, you confessed him as Lord and Savior, and that you're covered by his grace through faith, and his shed blood now defines who you are. That's all you need. That's it. That's it. You got that? You got it all. Nice, nice. (laughs) All right, regarding the question before the break, I believe Jesus is teaching that you can't mix the old with the new. When a person becomes a new creature in Christ, they should not hold on to their old ways because they are opposites and will cause confusion. Yeah, the the Bible call. here's what's interesting, and I, I run across this question all the time. Well, if I've received Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord, why am I still struggling with the same kinds of things I struggled with before I came to Christ. And I says, what you're dealing with is what the Bible calls the flesh. Mm -hmm. First of all, when you receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the power that sin has over you is broken. But it's set up patterns, ways of thinking, ways of reacting, ways of of engaging. Um, And so those patterns, those habits accompany you into your new relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why we need what the Bible calls sanctification, which is a progressive um, uh, remediation of those patterns and replacing them with truth and living in accordance with that truth. And so that's an incremental thing that goes on. It's called progressive sanctification, which simply means you're submitting to the will of God, you're, you're building up new patterns of communication, new patterns of engagement, new habits that are replacing the old ones. And that's what it means in, in terms of, frankly, of becoming spiritually mature, that you're going along that continuum towards maturation by progressive sanctification, replacing bad habits that no longer have power over you, but that have been so deeply rooted in your subconscious, you can't think of acting any other way until you're shown a new way. I know we're running out of time. I'm just shaking my head yes. That's exactly what I would yes. say. Ta- uh, Tom is nodding his head like a parakeet right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Would children who haven't acknowledged Christ as Savior be taken in the rapture? Well, Many Christians have talked about the age of accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the thing. The Lord is eminently just. No one is going to be condemned because they weren't mature enough or they didn't have the chance to respond. The Lord will take care of that. My attitude is help your children to know Jesus as early as you can for their own sake and living in this world. But if they're children and the Lord returns, 
I have great confidence they're going to be in the kingdom of God, just like all the babies that have been aborted. The Lord is just and fair and will do it right. And it's still all done by the blood of Jesus. Yeah, and the age accountability is going to be different depending on your upbringing, depending on your ethnicity, depending where you were brought up. And some people, like here in the United States, <laughs> were still teenagers at the age of 25, for crying out loud. I know. <laughs> so the idea is um, the age of accountability, only God knows when you have the capacity to fully engage the claims of the gospel and to make a decision for or against the cross. And that's between that person and God and not between me to judge that person. It's between them and God. Another comment that came in, works of Christians are tested by fire and rewarded. They're real. Yeah. I mean, it talks about the fact that What's going to be evaluated, some of the things we've done is wood, hay, and stubble. That when it's exposed to the fire of the beauty of God, it's burned up. Others, it's gold, precious stones, and silver that's purified by fire. And so it's the quality that we, uh, we give to the Lord. It's what we represent to the Lord or what we present on his altar that matters. Yeah, we always strive for the quality, but I'm still a human being, as you mentioned, and still a sinful human being that is trying to work this out and change new p- patterns. So I, as I go forward into it, I don't stop because I'm not as um, smart about this as I think I should be. I'm doing it to honor Jesus, and he will then really remove the, the gold from everything else. Mm-hmm. Well done, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Great questions today. I loved all the questions that came in. Yeah, I wish we had a little more time, but <laughs> we too. are just not doing an extended version of Guy Talk today. I've got Dr. Leighton Flowers coming on the program next hour. He's going to talk about the Messianic secret. And why did Jesus tell his followers to keep his identity a secret? Hmm. We've got some great scripture verses to look up, and we're going to talk to Leighton about that. That's all next. Thank you, uh, gentlemen. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Greg, for being here. Privilege. Good to be here. It was lovely as well. And we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Dr. Leighton Flowers. You can go learn about him at Soteriology101.com. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.